this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. Welcome back to Base Layer. This is David, and this is your new episode. This time around, I'm talking to Galen, the co-founder of Mouse Belt, which is an accelerator based in San Francisco. Thanks to Ditto PR, uh, I was out in San Francisco during San Francisco Blockchain Week, and I got to hang out with Galen and talk about Mouse Belt. As I mentioned, Mouse Belt is an accelerator. They are working with a lot of great projects, some of them focusing today on things like NFTs. And we talked to Galen about his past and how he got into this world. There was a time and place a few years back. He was living in a hacker house, air quotes. And in that time, he got to hang out with Vitalik Buterin, who apparently was uh, sharing some time there, too. And that time and that experience really led him to think about blockchains and about Turing completeness and about smart contracts and about the utilization of blockchains. And so that has really led to the formation of Mouse Belt. And so this is a really interesting time and place to talk about that. There are some accelerators popping up in this world that are working with some really interesting projects, Mouse Belt being one of those. And so we talked about that and we talked about uh, the, the future and what things are really trending in terms of blockchains. And so remember, nothing on Baselayer is investment advice, so please do your own research. And on the flip side, you're going to hear a great conversation I had in person with Galen, the co-founder of Mouse Belt. Enjoy. This is David, and I'm with Galen, the co-founder of Mouse Belt here in San Francisco. I'm here for uh, San Francisco Blockchain Week. How are you, Galen? Oh, pretty good. Uh, great to be on the show, David. So I wanted to get a sense. What we like to do on Base Layer is get to do kind of like the who, the what, and the why. And a little bit about you, and then about Mouse Belt. We're going to find out about what Mouse Belt is. Um, but you have a really interesting background, especially in this space. So. If you could, give us a little bit of background about yourself, how you got into this, and what I like to do on the show is not necessarily the when Bitcoin moment, but more kind of what about the underlying fundamentals of the technology, of distributed and decentralized systems, really solidified in your mind that this is where you're going to put a majority of your professional career into it. So if you could, a little bit about yourself, and then kind of when that moment happened, what specifically about blockchains or distributed decentralized systems really solidified it for you? So um, I guess uh, myself, um, I w- I'd been in San Francisco for a while. I had gone through 500 startups. I had been working on a few different tech projects over the years. And um, when I first started to hear about it, I was in this uh, hacker house setup. There were a bunch of people, a few of them were like very early on at uh, BitPay, and um, it happened that Vitalik had stayed there for a little while. And uh, I still hadn't, I hadn't bought Bitcoin really at that, or actually I think I I might have bought Bitcoin a little bit prior. I I hadn't messed around very much with it at that point. and when he was talking about, uh, he was giving this like example about like why you would want uh, Turing complete code on a blockchain. And most people's response was, what's a blockchain? Right. What's all of this? Um, and he was explaining like you could define an asset. People don't really need to trust each other. You could have code where you could reliably execute. 
without worrying about the situations at all or trusting a party to do a particular action. Right. Um, I think he gave this example that involved like arms dealers and gold bars. It was uh, not very convincing <laughs> at first, I, I, but just the, something struck me about just like, uh, you could write code, put it somewhere, and then it would always do what you want, even right. if it's not running on your computer. And that was really cool. So Vitalik started as a Bitcoiner. He started, he was writing, he was writing for Bitcoin Magazine. And so then he had this epiphany where he had this moment where he said, well, you can add Turing completeness to that. And I think for a lot of people outside of our sandbox, they don't really get that there's this world outside of Bitcoin. You know, I think a lot of the news and the media has really been focusing on Bitcoin for some time. And it gets a lion's share of attention from the media. But, you know, it sounds like you had early experience that there was a world outside of Bitcoin. Yeah, I, I, uh, I got really interested in like the, the concept of a smart contract. And uh, well, I guess Bitcoin was definitely the biggest. I started to uh, work a little bit more with it over time as people wanted to. Um, I've been working with IoT things and people wanted the concept of maybe if you had two companies who uh, were in a situation where maybe their interests aren't perfectly aligned, right. how do you uh, consolidate their data sets if someone's handing an item from one party to another? Right. A lot of people were interested in blockchain there. Um, I saw other uh, currencies or digital assets get defined, other payment methods. So I think there's really a lot outside of Bitcoin, although uh, Bitcoin as a store of value is probably the biggest right. use case everybody's interested in right now. So prior to the Hacker House, were you coding? Were you building other things? How did you get, in, how did you get into the Hacker House? Um, so I've been working on, I've been doing startups in the uh, IoT space. Right. I was doing um, a lot of technology with uh, RFID uh, and, and related uh, just tracking of items, tracking of people. So I, I got some, I, th there was sort of like a ledger of data, mm -hmm. although it was held with a single party. Right. And that's just seeing how that worked really also helped me get excited about the a shared distributed ledger. Yeah, I've seen a lot of emphasis on supply and, supply and logistics as regards to smart contracts. So this idea that you send something and then you have a smart contract on there which has you know specific you know kind of protocols in place, it has specific rules in place, and if those are not met, then obviously the delivery of the parcel or whatever it may be can be avoided. So. Interesting that you had that world of IoT and kind of understanding that supply side. Uh, side. So let's get into mouse belt. Give us a little bit of a, you know, as I said, we're moving from the who to the what. So what is mouse belt for people that don't know about it? So mouse belt is an organization that that really supports uh, blockchain com companies and entrepreneurs in um, three different ways. So the main the main organization is the accelerator. Mm -hmm. And uh, we go outside of just cash investments where we're, we're really joining the team, we're, we're building out the projects along with the founders right. uh, and really helping them get to the next stage. Um, as well, we just have a engineering services company and that's for more like larger projects where we're if someone wants uh, extra members of the team, we have a really talented team of blockchain engineers that we'll step in with. 
And uh, the third part is uh, the blockchain education and media arm. Okay. And that's really what we're trying to do to foster widespread education and adoption. We're targeting universities. Um, we're targeting uh, just users who are curious about learning more about a blockchain system, how it works, how they can get into it. So I'm curious, in terms of universities, I had been hearing that a lot of um, students in universities, because the power is usually cheap there, that they've been mining for a number of years. Oh, yeah. So have you, yeah. have you been experiencing that? Yeah, the, some universities even crack down. They change rules based on that. Okay. I remember when I was in the CS program way, way back, um, we had just started to hear about Bitcoin and everyone was just wanting to log in on their, their account on the, the server and just mine Bitcoin. Right. And some people did pretty well because it was trading at very little. Right. Like you get Bitcoin for, um, I mean, it was, it was under $20. Yeah. So, I mean, now it, now it's you mined a little bit back yeah. then, held on to it, you could be doing all right. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, you know, from your dealings with students now, what is their understanding of this? Is it something, are they, do they see it as a store of value? Do they see it as something where they can just, is it something just cool? Uh, is it something where they think, oh wow, you know, I can actually really have a positive effect on my, my future by saving this thing? How do you, if your interaction, what are you seeing from them? So students, um, the students that I interact with are a lot of engineering students mm -hmm. and they're really interested in how they can write code around it. They okay. have interesting ideas some of them are kind of fed up with uh, the social apps and like sort of invasive apps to privacy. They'll want to do things differently, right. or they just see a see it as a really interesting new technology that they want to get involved with. Um, on on another side of what they there's they're interested in is there's a a lack of uh, talent right now mm -hmm. in that area, and some of them see it as a way where uh, they can develop a skill set that can really help them get hired later. Interesting that you brought up privacy. Um, you know, I have a theory that privacy is going to be a catalyst going forward for a lot of digital assets that we're starting to see with GDPR overseas, and now we're seeing 40 uh, attorney generals kind of probing Google about their privacy, and now we're seeing even Twitter today, you know, uh, this recording, you know, Jack Dorsey of Twitter basically said, you know, he's kind of putting a stamp down on a lot of the kind of you know, the political ads and sales and stuff like that, and, you know, because it really, I see it's this whole privacy thing and kind of getting back to our digital selves is interesting. I'm, I'm happy to hear that they're, that the students that you're talking to are, are caring about that. So I want to get a little bit more specific. Um, there is something that you guys stated that I think is super interesting. So on your website, you said you have invested in more than 60 blockchain companies. So you know what works and what does not work in the blockchain space. And so unpack that. And so, you know, for people, for investors, for people that are outside of our sandbox, how do you know what works and what doesn't work? What are some of the patterns and what are some of the, the kind of markers that you've been able to spot where things work and what don't work? So one thing I think that wasn't emphasized enough in the previous years is an emphasis on a working product that meets a user concern or demand. Mm -hmm. I, I've heard other uh, VC groups talk about a FAT protocol thesis, where if they invest in a protocol, then projects will build on it and their investment will magnify. Right. And while those did very well when there was a bubble, a lot of them are really not seeing that much use. 
they're, they're building out these platforms that then need to get apps to build on them that then need to get users. It's, it's very, it's a lot more that needs to happen mm -hmm. before these things really get adopted. What we've been focusing on is applications where blockchain adds to it in a meaningful way and um, they meet some user concern. Now, when you're saying when a blockchain really adds value, is that also in terms of the token? You know, there's always been a question when we've seen opportunities come about that are using a token. Why does this have a token? Does it really need to have a token? Is that one of the questions that you ask too? Uh, if, if the project has a token, we absolutely ask that. Right. That's in the application on our website. If you have a token, you have to explain it. Right. And um, even people that have come in with the idea of having a token sometimes have realized maybe they don't need it or uh, how they're using their token might be different through the course of the accelerator. Are you also seeing differentials? Are you seeing more going to proof of stake these days versus proof of work or kind of delegated proof of stake? What type of consensus algorithms are you seeing majority of startups that you're looking at these days use? So I would say most of the startups that apply are not building out their own blockchain. Uh -huh. In the recent batch, we've had uh, one that's actually building out their own blockchain. Many of them are building products that'll use a blockchain in a meaningful way, mm -hmm. uh, but there, there probably doesn't need to be as many blockchains as there are right now, mm -hmm. um, and probably more of a focus on doing meaningful things with them. In terms of uh, the last batch, one that we accepted, Knowledger, that is building out their own ledger, they're delegated proof of stake. Interesting. And, uh, that served as, uh, in their instance, uh, they wanted to build a distributed academic journal. Right. Uh, many academic journals right now have a system where there's a paywall, uh, people submit papers, there's sort of a blind peer review process, mm -hmm. and they wanted to have each, per, each entity holding that one of those nodes be a university or someone who might be respected or trusted to hold that data, and many researchers could endorse. Okay. And that model fit very close with delegated proof of stake. Are you seeing more kind of hybrid blockchains like public and private, like a Kadena, for instance? Are you seeing more of those? Um, so yeah, I, I have seen more more of those recently. Yeah, there is. Uh, people have started to realize maybe they don't need to do everything on a public ledger. Right. There was there was an initial push to put all this data on a public ledger, but now nodes that validate that they validate the data they care about and also a ton of other people's data they don't care about, and if. Maybe if they were raising a huge amount of money in 2017 and virtually have unlimited money, they don't care if they have to run a massive server needlessly. So are a lot of these projects, all of these startups, are they being built on Ethereum? Uh, so that's actually a trend that I've seen that's kind of interesting. Um, back in uh, 2017, early 2018, um, it was a really high proportion. It was probably... Uh, over a third, nearing a half of projects we're trying to build on Ethereum. Mm -hmm. And there's been a gradual drift over, over time, and now it's probably a quarter or fewer that are using applying to us and saying, we're going to use Ethereum. Mm -hmm. So I think this might be some protocols that we're building out in the previous years. They're now getting to market, and more people are looking at some other options. Mm -hmm. Ethereum is still the single most used one, though. Do you think there could be some movement because it's moving from proof of work to proof of stake? Um, are, are you 
referring to Ethereum yeah, as a Ethereum. network is transitioning. Yeah. Um, so that could be the case. I, I have seen the Ethereum chain that is staying very true to its its roots, Ethereum Classic, right. still doesn't have that much usage. So I don't know if it's due to like the hardcore um, Ethereum users wanting to stay how it is right now. Right. I think uh, when Ethereum changes, people will probably change with whatever it's people will stick with whatever the majority of users are at. So I want to talk a little bit. So you've had two cohorts. You've had one and two. And so in the second one, I want to, there are a few companies. So AC3, um, there's Proofbox, and they seem to be addressing this idea of NFTs, of non-fungible tokens. And there's this idea of kind of representing real-world assets on-chain. And so is this a narrative and a theme that you see as really prevalent going forward? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think I think this is something that people are going to want to do more and more. People have defined digital assets uh, pretty well, like with Bitcoin, with Ethereum. They've even created digital assets that mimic real-world assets you see with uh, MakerDAO and DAI. Right. Um, but if you look, if you were going to look at a coin market cap, one of the biggest uh, or one of the top assets by market cap is Tether, uh, which is custodied in US dollars. And there are numerous stable coins which are custodied in US dollars. Right. And I think that's probably one of the first places where they've seen uh, real world assets represented on the blockchain. And this is going to expand, I believe, to other real world assets, maybe custodying um, uh, gold or other stable things in terms of prices, mm -hmm. and then tracking physical objects. I think is a very interesting area. So in terms of custodying or having a bucket of real world assets, Libra, I know you have some opinions on Libra. You've, everyone, their mother talks about Libra. There isn't a day I'm not asked to opine about Libra. And so I would love to kind of get your sense of where you think, you know, the project, you know, in terms of what it brings to the overall ecosystem. You know, what do you think it really is the promise of Libra, or do you think that you know Bitcoin or another one of the current assets can really do it better? So I think uh, Libra is a great thing to exist. Uh, it probably got way too much hate in the recent testimony by a bunch of uh, U.S. politicians who really didn't understand it. Yep. Uh, but at its core, it's a stable coin, not just backed by one asset, but by many, mm -hmm. which I think is a, is a very cool concept. Even uh, mo most existing stable coins are pinned to a single asset with a single way in and out. Right. This has many parties validating many checks on it. I think uh, it's a great thing to exist. Um, it probably got uh, unnecessary hate in Congress. Uh, people were asking questions about it, people who didn't understand it fully, who were afraid of the dollar losing supremacy. And I think if they continue to push like that, they're going to force Libra or similar projects to pursue working in areas outside the U.S. So outside of the U.S., that brings us to China. And I think you have some, you know, we saw DCEP being launched or effectively, you know, being rolled out. Um, and we've seen all of the websites in China basically that were dismissing blockchain being completely washed out over the last, you know, 24 to 48 hours. And so to your kind of, your, your note on that, do you think if the United States continues to have such regulatory kind of authoritarianism on this, 
that we're going to lose to a sovereign nation like China in this kind of race to a stablecoin? Uh, absolutely. I, I think um, this, uh, a stablecoin issued by China might still be a little tricky to get to work. Uh, I don't know if people would accept that right away. Uh, but if the U.S. continues to avoid innovating in this area and other countries are more open to it, I think absolutely there's going to be a talent moving outside the U.S., projects launching outside the U.S. Um, it, it, it'll definitely be a gradual process and other places will surpass it. So aside from NFTs and kind of representing real world assets on chain, are there any other themes that you're really interested in or you're seeing a lot of um, kind of supply in terms of startups coming into the space to solve? Is it governance or scaling? Or what are some of the other things that you're seeing in terms of themes that might play out for your second cohort? So I think um, more focus on non-fungible tokens. I think there will definitely, we'll see more of those in the future, people doing interesting things with them. Um, We've seen uh, pretty uh, high high usage with uh, uh, the gaming community. Mm -hmm. People like to own their video game assets. They like to trade them. Um, so I think uh, non-fungible tokens and collectibles are something we'll see a lot more of in the future. Mm -hmm. I think we'll probably also see uh, a bit more of identity in the future. Uh, rather than like a very broad, generic identity solution, there may be more specific, tailored things that perform uh, a certain aspect of identity very well. Right. So, thinking about kind of how you actually help portfolio companies aside from the capital, you mentioned that. So, as an accelerator, um, what are some of the other ways that you've been able to really, you know, help a, a startup expedite their their kind of process and getting them to, you know, real world usage and getting them to applications that me and other listeners can use? How are you helping those startups beyond just the capital? So beyond the capital, we are act as members of their team, pretty much in each company inside of Mousebelt at a time. So we will help build out their application. We'll, we'll supplement their engineering team and build out the product. Uh, we have business development resources who will help uh, validate the product in the market, help form partnerships, help find companies or users to pilot with, uh, help shape their marketing plans. Um, we have relationships with uh, legal firms and uh, we'll, while we, it's difficult to give someone legal advice, we can refer them to people right. who will. One of the, the kind of thesis that I have right now is that Bitcoin and other digital assets are having a bit of an identity crisis. You know, for one person, it might be a store value. You know, for another person, it might be a consensus network. Um, you know, where do you think, you know, in terms of getting people, everyday people, to use this, do you think there is this kind of killer app or do you think it's just basically going to take just time for adoption of these kind of platforms? I think there's very rarely a killer app situation. Right? I think there's always smaller niche uses that people will like that uh, it does something very well that they want. Um, I think it's very rare that you ever get a killer app that makes all the users of the world suddenly come to you. Uh, more often it's you solve a specific pain point or you make it easier to move money from one place to another 
or you can do something that you couldn't do before, and uh, we'll see more gradual adoption in that way. One of the things I was, I wrote a paper recently to help uh, institutional investors kind of get an idea of this landscape of digital assets. And one of the things I said in terms of, you know, fund managers, you know, whether VCs out there. And I said, you know, if a VC is not working with an accelerator like a mouse belt, that I think is a real red flag. Because uh, the idea generation, the kind of the deal origination is being spawned by, you know, you know institutions like yours. Um, so from that perspective, do you see a lot of funds that are reaching out to you to get a sense of kind of what's happening with those companies? So yeah, we've, we've maintained uh, contacts with some local uh, VC groups. I would say that we're earlier on, we were not as big of an accelerator as 500 startups or Y Combinator yet with a very broad venture network. All right. But I think that's something that we're building right now. Um, we've already seen um, uh, more established venture firms invest in companies that have left Mousebelt. Got it. So one of the things that we'd like to do to kind of round up the show is to get a little bit more about you. So we heard about the Hacker House, which is awesome, um, and about how you've been building some things. But what really gets inside you? And there are two things that you know I always like to point out that we put inside our brains every day, hopefully, um, aside from crypto Twitter or whatever the hell else you do. Um, but in terms of reading, if you have read anything recently that was really amazing, awe-inspiring, something that you told all your friends and family about, like, oh my God, you got to read this. Uh, anything that you've read recently that you wanted to kind of let us all know about. And then music. Um, I think it, it's a really interesting tell about you know, a person's personality about what music they listen to. Um, I always laughed that, you know, when I had Jeremy Welsh on from Casa, he said that he likes death metal. And I was like, whoa, what are you talking about death metal? Um, and people have talked about classical music, and people have talked about electronica, and people have talked about Hungarian pulp music. Um, and so I think it's really interesting to see what people put inside their, their brains every single day. Um, so anything that you've read recently that kind of that resonates and any kind of music that you listen to? Uh, let's see. So for a books that I've read recently, um, I've really been liking just books on statistics. Okay. It's, it's a fun topic. Um, I guess it, it doesn't go really heavily in, into statistics, but Nate Silver's book where yeah. he does each chapter is uh, one thing that he does a model after. So he'll do baseball, he'll do politics. Uh, that was kind of fun, yep. and they they gave a shout out to an old lab that I worked with oh, cool. uh, when I was in school, which so I, I that was why I picked up the book in the first place. Okay. Uh, but it was it was actually really fun to read everything. Awesome. And any music? Uh, so music. Um, so uh, I mean, often it's whatever on the radio or hip hop, but I have really been enjoying the new Tool album. Okay. Cool. Awesome. So the last thing that I'd like to do with folks that come on is letting other people know where they can find out more about you, about Mousebelt. So feel free to, you know, kind of, if there's a website or if there's a way that if you're an investor, they want to find out more about you or if they're actually, you know, a startup out there that's listening to us, where can they get involved? Where, how can they find out more about you guys? Oh, so yeah, you go to mousebelt.com. Uh, you can find out about the program, you can find out about the engineering services, you can find out if you're a student at a university who's trying to get blockchain into your club or into your school, you go to the Mouse Belt University page there. Uh, or if you got a startup idea, you could just apply, uh, see if it's a good fit. 
Um, but yeah, anyone is welcome to apply there. Awesome. So this was Galen, the co-founder of Mousebelt. We're in San Francisco for San Francisco Blockchain Week, and this was an awesome get-together and getting to learn about Mousebelt. And hopefully we can catch up with you in a few months and see how things are going. Yeah, sounds great. Awesome. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash base layer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on Base Layer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space and the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, market commentary, videos, and more.